0: everyone. Today is October 4th, 2018. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Selma Karashi. Today, it is a pleasure to have in the chair, Maricela Morales. Hi, Marcella. Hi. She is a senior investigator and chief of both the Integrative Neuroscience Research Branch and the Neuronal Network section at uh, NIDA. Intramural Program. Intramural Program. IRP, that's right. Uh, Her lab is defining the neuronal diversity and synaptic connectivity of the VTA and its interaction with other brain structures in the processing and integration of information underlying behaviors associated with the neurobiology of addiction. So around the room, we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. Charlie Wilson. Hi. Matt Wanat. Howdy. Carlos Palladini. Hello. Hey, guys. Thanks for joining us. Lots to talk about. The mesocortical dopaminergic system, which has its origins, I guess, in the VTA. It's been the center of how we discuss the neural circuits of motivated behavior and addiction. And it's it's often called the reward pathway, uh, based on a huge body of work by yourself and a lot of these guys in the room. So, But in the last decade, your lab has been defining a mesocortical glutamatergic pathway that's basically overlaid on the same network machinery. And interestingly, the story of this pathway seems more linked to aversion than reward. So can you kind of... Tell the story from from your perspective.
1: Well, my perspective is uh, what I find uh, very exciting is um, the fact that within the same brain structure, we have embedded neurons that they participate in different behavior, and these are uh, this is something that is emerging not just in the ventral tegmental area but in other brain structures. So the question is how um, the different parts of the brain regulates the neurons, that they are neighbors, that the, ne- the neurons that participate in reward of an aversion. What is the timing in there?
0: So how do you, do you imagine that these pathways, in, within the VTA, so there's a population of dopaminergic neurons, and we've been looking at their output to various parts of you know the prefrontal cortex, the accumbens, and those have been a focus for a long time. Um, And now, this other pathway, this glutamatergic pathway, has sort of the same kind of sort of traffic patterns, essentially. And I I get the sense that you're looking more at the output structures. But how much of this of the machinery is actually interconnected at the level of the VTA? How how much do the pathways interact? Do you think, and how how much of that is known at this? So uh,
1: yes, we are studying the outputs, and there's where there's the overlap, as you call it, the traffic. But we had to keep in mind that these neurons, the, the dopamine or glutamine neurons, they are receiving information maybe from the same brain structures but from different neurons. This is where the time and, and yeah, And we are now studying um, at this um, organization. In the past, we uh, had the idea and a lot of advances uh, were made with the idea that region A in the brain communicate with region B in the brain. But now we are moving to another level. We are now discovering that we need to know what kind of neuron in region A is communicated with what kind of neuron in region B. So now we are moving from connection from cell to cell type instead of brain structure to brain structure. And this is uh, why we are finding these very uh, interesting advances in neuroscience, in in neurocircuitry, because now we have the tools to be able to analyze uh, different types of neurons.
2: And now that because of doing cell type to cell type, then cell types within a given structure will also have some kind of crosstalk, right? Yes. Like the GABA cells and the VTA. Famously project to the dopamine cells in the VTA, although now we don't know if those GABA cells also release glutamate, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> we know, but, uh, yeah, we don't know.
1: But we something that also is very interesting that uh, uh, we know that glutamatergic neurons in the VTA can regulate dopamine neurons in the VTA, and these uh, when you uh, turn on this pathway, this results in reward, but this. But other glutamatergic neurons that they project, as you mentioned, for instance, to the nucleus accumbens, that can be aversive. So we have a neuron that can release the same neurotransmitter, but the consequences in behavior, they can be different depending on where they're making synapses. And I don't know, it also has to do with the timing, correct, of the, the whole network.
3: Yeah, nobody ever talks about the dynamics of the thing, but you have done a little bit at least, working on dynamics and asking about at least frequency of activation. Oh
0: yeah,
3: (laughs) and uh, but the but I mean, we imagine we normally imagine cells sitting quietly. And then at some point, there's a stimulus, and the neuron responds to the stimulus. And so we can say that's the onset of the response to the stimulus. And then we could say, well, who gets there first, who fires the most, and what's the sequence of events? But that's uh, almost impossible to reproduce in an experiment because the world doesn't happen in these discrete like events. And so, in an animal exploring an environment, for example, you can never really say, When is the stimulus and when is the response? But things are going up and down anyway on their own, with their own dynamics. And we don't really have good ways of teasing the dynamics of that apart, I think. I mean, we can do it in sensory pathways where we can control sensory stimuli and just turn them off and then turn them on. But in a situation like the nucleus accumbens in BTA, the cells never quit.
4: They're always fine. So, so I'd also like to take apart the question of the relationship to behavior in terms of aversive and rewarding, right? Those are defined by, in most in most experiments, you do a whole, uh, a, a large modulation over a large class of things, and you get a large uh, aversive or rewarding things, okay. right? Mm-hmm. And in the real world, things are kind of half they go up and down, and things are somewhat rewarding, and some things are rewarding, and some things are aversive, and they come in different dynamics, and so forth. And and maybe the interplay of both systems are happening all the time to you know process both aversion and reward. It's just that when you blast one class of neurons a lot in some particular case, then you get uh, on average, then you get uh, an aversive response. It doesn't mean that they're only. Involved in aversion are maybe more as aversive overall normally because they have a dynamic balance that can be canceled and so forth.
2: Or they could be just, actually in the real world, just rewarding because they're always tonically and dynamically active and it's a decrease in this activity that this releases the brakes, for example. And then it's actually a reward pathway, just in the opposite sense that we normally think of activity in the brain is we always think of activity as... The action potential um, inducing something downstream, but if you always have action potentials coming on, then that becomes part of the noise, and it's the physic stop in action potentials that that happens transiently that is, becomes the signal, right? And and that's hard to reproduce in experiments, especially in vitro, right, where you're you're trying to induce things by stimulating with electricity or optogenetics.
3: Yeah. What's what's kind of easy is just to Turn on some neurons for whenever the animal walks into some compartment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's a really powerful thing to be able to do. I mean, we, you turn on a particular cell type, and you see that the animal doesn't like to be in the place where that cell type is being activated. And I mean, that, that's basically what we know.: Yeah. Uh, we don't really know what the animal experiences or on what time scale. So what happens? Uh, what happens if in those experiments, if you just turned on the laser when the animal just is getting close to the room, and not the whole rest no inter- of the time? Yeah. Or is there any way to probe the animal's experience temporally by fooling around with when the laser turns on?
2: It should be. <laughs> it's just a programming issue, right? Just.
3: I it's kind of conceptual issue about what it would mean like yeah. if, or what you see and how you would interpret it it's, it's, oh I, I think, see you know if you're just making a boundary like um, like one of these uh, electric fences that are supposed to keep your dog in your yeah. dog has a collar or something <laughs> like that and you some dogs will just rush the fence take the shock and then get on the other side and they'll just do that over and over again so if you made an aversion boundary, you might be able to tell how long the aversion lasts or something about it by changing how long the animal is in that aversion boundary. I don't know, I'm just, yeah. I'm crazy. I'm just thinking about that.
5: Yeah. So, Marcel, I was wondering if you had some ideas, sort of, I mean, everybody was, you know, talking about reward and aversion. You, you know, identified this really cool sort of pathway of the glutamatergic neurons from the midbrain going to the medial shell that is, when it's activated, is aversive. But, you know, too many labs to count have sort of demonstrated if you activate the dopamine cells going from the midbrain to the nucleus accumbens, is sort of rewarding. And it's this, this conflict that's in there. And yes.
1: Yeah.
5: Is there any? What do you think is going on? Is there any evidence that there's maybe different inputs that are coming into these different types of neurons, or what is sort of the natural role of these sort of you know opposing pathways going to largely a very similar brain region from different types of neurons? It's almost like it's canceling everything out.
1: I don't think it's canceling. I think it's the timing. Uh, if you receive. Um, you perceive the environment as something dangerous. Uh, you need to activate neurons that um, protect you. And we said, you in the environment, uh, there's the smell of a fox. So that is translated into the stimulation of, for example, uh, lateral hypothalamus neurons. That project to the VTA, which is something that we have found. So, in that way, and if an animal is eating, the animal stops eating uh, because he or she is in, in a dangerous situation. Uh, so, the animal stops eating. So, at that point, maybe the lateral hypothalamus it was stimulating dopamine neurons. Uh, so, that's feeding. But now when there's a, a, a danger in, in the environment, now the animal, is there's another pathway in the brain. And maybe there's also the lateral hypothalamus, but there are different neurons in the lateral hypothalamus that get activated and then activates glutamatergic neurons in the VTA, so the animal runs away. So I don't think... It's a question of having both an aversion and reward, but at different times, okay. and, and this is going to be very fast, because otherwise we cannot survive as a species.
0: <laughs> and signals impinging on uh, different types of neurons, exactly. whether they're interneurons or because this is a this sort of came up in last week's podcast with Chip about the ants, the areas of the brain being seen as ants and an ant that all kind of do the same thing, and the input determines everything, and there's. Such a gradation, even within. So, for example, your glutamatergic <coughs> uh, neuron projections from the VTA actually impinge on a, an interneuron, a, yeah. a PV positive interneuron, that then has its effect on the you know the the shell pathway. So, there's sort of this, these signal inversions that are that have to be teased out through anatomy, right? yes and physiology
1: but. physiology yeah and so another thing that that you mentioned about interneurons uh, is that um, there's a microcircuitry in different parts of the brain that people have studied like the hippocampus and the cortex but um, also nucleus accumbens but when we think about BTA we don't think about microcircuitry Some uh, of and, us do. and 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 now <laughs> Now that we know that there are glutamatergic neurons that make local synapses there, and we know that there are GABA neurons make local synapses there, we know that there's dendritic release of dopamine, I think that we need to to pay more attention of the microcircuitry of the VTA and the role that they played in behavior, which is something that we haven't done. And I think in order to be able to study better the microcircuitry within the VTA, we need uh, to go back to classical tools like microscopy, because that's the way we're going to be able to see the type of synapses because we have uh, making a, a great advances in confocal microscopy and all kinds of microscopy. But in, uh, as we were talking about this morning, the only way that you can visualize a synapse is by microscopy. And in you fact, everywhere, we,
3: everywhere we say we know something about microcircuits, those are areas of the brain that people were interested in in the 1970s and 1980s, and that they were working on the electron microscopy of it. Nucleus accumbens isn't one of those areas, and so we think we don't think about microcircuitry of nucleus accumbens because there's no literature on it because it wasn't being studied during that time. that people were using electron microscope, so it's a, it's amazing, you know that. Cerebellum and the olfactory bulb and the cerebral cortex and the thalamus are places where we think of when we think microcircuitry, and they just happen to be the places that everybody was interested in, right? At the moment that electron microscopy was at its peak. So there's all these vast places in the brain that have never been that have never been studied that way in depth. Yes.
2: So thinking about electron microscopy and timing. You, you published this nice work where you, sh- you show that on a single neuron, from one single neuron to another single neuron, um, the release or the synapses of glutamate and GABA. So yes. when, so two synapses, one neuron to one neuron. Um, if, you, if you don't think about timing, then you would think, well, glutamate gets released at the same time as GABA, which makes no sense, right? Because then they just sort of cancel each other out. Um, is, there, is there any thought about how, under what conditions we could get the release from one neuron, uh, release from one synapse but not the other synapse, so that we get release of, say, glutamate in one to one condition or, or GABA in the other condition? Yes. Or at least some change in balance in the release of both? Uh,
1: I think that under normal conditions, uh, we don't have that, but we can think um under a pathological conditions so of brain a brain disorder. in when you stop the production of the vesicular glutamate transporter and now you're not going to have gaba into the vesicles so under those conditions uh, obviously you don't release gaba only glutamate so this is a pathological situation, yeah. but uh, under normal conditions, both of them are going to be released at the same time. But the amount, I think, is going to be different depending on, on the stage in which the neuron is at that moment.
0: But the one neuron yeah. to one neuron is an assumption, right? It, this could be a one neuron releasing two. Multiple neurons exactly. Oh, right. is
1: that what you're no, doing we
2: saw recording? we saw micrographs.
0: There were two dendrites, but we didn't know if they were from the same
1: yeah. neuron. Right? In, in, so, we you are right. We we saw that, but also uh, we found uh, that a neuron is receiving uh, is making synapses with an uh, axon terminal that makes that release GABA and glutamate. Yeah. Uh, now we we don't know. Um, how, the frequency of those synapses. But uh, also, we have seen the ones that they are se- segregated.
2: Uh, segregated, so could, you, you can could see how that would kind of make sense, right? So then exactly, one yeah. neuron, when, whenever the upstream neuron fires, that means that this downstream neuron has to be inhibited and this other downstream neuron has to be excited. So that's a really good way to ensure that that happens. Rather than putting some middleman in there, and if the middleman doesn't do his job, then it messes up. But yeah. the, to the one neuron to one neuron.
1: But maybe we need the middleman there because there are not garbage neurons in the lateral habenula, yeah. and we need a, a way to immediately stop an action. Yeah. So in that way, it makes sense. Huh? And
3: if the synaptic. Probabilities are low, like they are most places. Then you don't release both of them at the same yeah. time. Yeah, but then so that's the one one or the other or nothing.
2: <laughs> or nothing. Yeah.
3: And uh, rarely, occasionally, you could
2: release. Both but that's that's a very inefficient way to communicate. It'd be very probabilistic. Or, yeah, probabilistically, you don't know whether this, you're gonna what, do you, you do you what do you know you're going to get. You don't know what you're going to get. So there has to be some conditions where the probability is increased for one, and decreased for the other, and vice versa. It's, so, it's, it's, it's very interesting to try to think about. How an activity of a neuron will affect probability of release basically in the same compartment, the same axon terminal, but one synapse and not the other. So
0: the vesicular pools are distinct though you, you've seen that and shown that is there any sense that there's any difference in the vesicle uh, distribution uh, machinery or, or anatomy or like that like I'm imagining you know a dense core sort of were recruited later and you can see that they're not obviously dense core vesicles but is there some sort of prioritization based on the structure of the vesicle that you can imagine that would delimit release of one before another, or based on some signaling mechanism that would invoke one pool versus another?
1: Well, uh, just based on the preliminary electrophysiological data that we have, it seems that both of them are released at the same time, but uh, they, but with different dynamics. So. At the beginning, we have release of glutamate and GABA, and then uh, there's more release of GABA than glutamate as as there's more stimulation of the terminal. Uh, So we know that there's a dynamic there, although both of them are released at the same time. They are not acting in the Mm -hmm. same way. And in terms of the... Compartmentalization of the vesicles within an axon terminal, the glutamatergic and the GABA. I think this is a, this is a very important question at the level of cell biology. First of all, what is the trafficking? How these different vesicles traffic? Uh, maybe they use the the same uh, molecules to traffic in the axon, and then how are they are segregated within the axon terminal? And how are they are retained? So, all these are very basic, important questions that uh, we don't have an answer yet.
5: Can I throw another question onto that? Uh, has anybody looked at LTP and LTD at these synapses? You know, both uh, the the glutamatergic, GABAergic side of things, you know, that, I mean, that's another sort of dimension that sort of adds to this.
1: Yeah, because, n- no, because we didn't have the tools to do that, uh, because we didn't have these animals uh, where. Uh, with the capability to stimulate exactly these dual axon terminals, but now we do. Uh, mm-hmm. and, so the synapses we, can
3: learn which to do, which to be. Yeah. You're thinking maybe they could learn to be mostly GABA or learn to be yeah. mostly glutamate.
5: Yes, yeah. You have a split, you have a snapshot looking at it mm-hmm. right now, and so you don't know. I mean, developmentally, there's so many questions. Exactly.
1: So one one of the things that we are doing now is the big question mm-hmm. that we have is if you had an animal in Day one, or day five, or fourteen, or whatever after is born. So, uh, do they already have these dual glutamatergic, GABAergic terminals? Maybe not. So, this is something that we are doing. We we have animals at different um, post-developmental stages, and trying to figure out at what point you have this formation of the dual GABA glutamatergic terminals. Uh, my speculation is that uh, at the early in, in development, you have mainly the glutamatergic component because glutamate is also a signaling molecule in development. And uh, maybe it starts moving the glutamatergic component into the lateral habenula, and later the GABA start to appear. But this is only speculation. We don't have any evidence. So we are very interested to find out at one point in development these dual GABAergic, glutamatergic axon terminals are formed in order to find out a window in development where we can manipulate this developmental stage via changes in serotonin, environment, drugs—you name it. You See,
3: know sorry. Yes. Is this happening all over the brain? It seems like that, once you figured out. How to make use of having dual transmitters? And
0: you've identified and every,
3: everybody in the brain.
2: That once you too once too you, once you see something, then you yeah. can't unsee it in other parts right. of the
1: brain. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the release of do, uh, more than one neurotransmitter is the rule, uh, and this neurotransmitter uh, is, can be a neurotransmitter that we know for a long time, but this uh, neuromodulator, than dopamine. But here, what I th- find fascinating is that we have two fast neurotransmitters released from the same compartment. And what I find fascinated is that the lateral havenula is uh, enriched in these axon terminal, dual axon terminals. Uh, I I don't know if other parts of the brain are like Mm -hmm. that, but you know, this is like a magnet for this. So that's the other thing. Uh, what is in the lateral habanula that attracts these uh, dual uh, GABA glutamatergic axon terminals? So
5: you think mm-hmm. there might be a developmental signal that's produced by the lateral habanular neurons that's maybe eliciting these sort of projections that are coming into it, the afferents to make... You, you, is it producing a signal that makes it or something unique, or
1: or, or the of these world neurons, they are the signal. Huh? Yeah. So I think it is, it's uh, it's two, uh, Two tangles. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know, you know. So these are the very exciting questions that I hope uh, the students can take and move so with
4: it, them. <laughs> So you mentioned that the lateral menu doesn't have uh, gabergic interneurons. Is mm-hmm. how unique is that? In terms of a brain area,
1: exactly. There's there's something that is unique, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the. I don't know the whole brain. <laughs>
4: uh, I mean, maybe it's you. Maybe it goes together. They need some inhibition, and this is their solution. something fast
1: to need it there. Uh,
4: it, and if they don't have. Gabergic interneurons, you don't have fast inhibition, so you have to make it at the same place. Or something.
1: What, so this is like feed-forward inhibition, yeah. you, you think? Yeah, I don't know. I mean,
4: maybe it goes the other way. Maybe they, because they have these dual synapses, they don't they need they, the they, they, <laughs> they you know none of the gabergic interneurons migrate there, and they don't set Oh, yeah,
1: that's possible. Yeah, right. Or, but, yeah. So so now the question is, what happened in the human brain? And we have identified in human brain these uh, dual axon terminals in the lateral habenula. Now the question is, what happened in in postmortem material from individuals that have brain disorders? Yeah. Is there's a chain in there? I don't know. That, that's something that it would be interesting to look at.
2: I wonder if it's possible that um, that you still get. Co-release, simultaneous release of GABA and glutamate, but then it's the activity of the postsynaptic neuron that determines how it responds. That, so if the cell's already firing at its maximum rate, then more glutamate is not going to make it fast, fire faster. Um, but the GABA that's being released might slow it down. Right? Exactly, or if it's yeah. if it's not firing at all, then the GABA might not won't do much to change that. But the glutamate will help it fire a bit faster, even though the GABA's is working against that. But it could be just be the the presynaptic neuron doesn't care if it releases glutamate or GABA, so it just releases both, and it's the postsynaptic neuron activity that then determines how it responds.
1: Yeah, how, how you read yeah. the information. This yeah. is Fascinating, because yeah. there are uh, some studies showing that drugs of abuse changes the levels of receptors, GABA, glutamate. Uh, so, uh, but also. So so these, if these drugs of abuse or whatever pathological situation changes the expression of these GABA glutamate postsynaptic receptors, no matter how much you release of GABA and glutamina for these axon terminals, yeah. the information is going to be different That in the way it's going to be received. But the other thing is the firing of these neurons. So I think that all this is very fascinating. And Again, it opens, and I'm very excited about this because it opens a lot of questions and another research to be done. Mm-hmm.
3: So there's this idea that the lateral habinula controls the dopamine neurons in the in, in the vTA as well. Is that not right? Yes, and so this is really a loop uh, of some kind
1: uh, some kind yes, but also these neurons project to the dorsal raphe. And, and have a, a, um, a lot of regulation there. Others, uh, they project to the RMTG, and through the RMTG can regulate all uh, dopamine not just in the T eight but so also in the It's not just one loop, it's, it's multiple loops. Yeah, so, so it's a HOP, So lateral Habenula, uh. that regulates major uh, monoamine uh, centers.
3: So
5: how does the projections to the VTA differ from those to the substantia nigra? And I, I'm, I'm curious, do you see a lot of these glutamate neurons in the substantia nigra? Substantia nigra? And there also are a in, few.
1: Uh, yeah, in the substantia nigra compacta, there are some glutamatergic neurons, but those are not dual uh, glutamate And
5: Is there anything in sort of the locus coeruleus as well, as far as more complexity... Give some love to the other catecholamines we don't talk about
1: <laughs> as much. Um, I think the, the locus ceruleus, uh, those neurons, they don't co-release glutamate. Hmm.
2: And you're you you planning on looking whether the glutamate GABA cells project within the VTA?
1: Yes. Yeah? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And for that, we're going to do electromicroscopy.
2: Ah, excellent.
1: Yeah, yeah. because it's more difficult to do with recordings. So. For what I understand,
2: more difficult to do
1: to do uh, slides, electrophys. Oh, so
3: That's not so bad. Uh,
1: it's not so bad. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I mean recording pairs.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah you got
3: to yeah. record so, pairs.
1: So people have been trying to do that, and they haven't even been able to do the the record when they do pair recording. They haven't been able to see the glutamatergic uh, see. input okay. within the VTA.
0: The other uh-huh. thing your work points out is the uh, regional diversity of dopaminergic versus the glutamateria. I mean, there's a real uh, pattern or, or a distribution difference between lateral, yeah, yeah, exactly, in and, in and, and, uh, VTA, and it's interesting because there's so much literature that we just don't necessarily know how to grapple with now in terms of some of that spatial diversity of what kinds of neurons we're talking about. How do you, how do you go back and kind of do meta-analyses? on? I don't, I don't think
1: that we need to do the meta-analysis because most of the work, at least in slice electrophysiology, has been done on those it's neurons that they are very lateral, the ones that they are close to the substantia nigra compacta. And the same thing goes for in vivo electrophys. Uh, people, are, uh, for some time, they have been avoiding the recordings in the medial parts of the VTA, which is the ones that they ha- is the area where there's a lot of. Except for Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. has been interested in the medial
1: part. So, so uh, what I'm trying to, to stress in 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 my talks is the need to do more uh, lateral medial um recordings of analysis, and also it would be very uh, important to when we do this analysis uh, to report in in the in our papers where we were recording exactly uh, to 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 put a die to put something and say all my data came from this area of of the brain yeah of the lat, of the bta and and then we start making more sense of what is happening? What we are recording from? But now that we have the tools to label in vivo neurons and then go and do recordings, I think we will be able to to learn more about the different neurons. Uh, and and then even we have we have the capability to label these GABA only or glutamatergic only neurons in the VTA. Uh, these neurons, they're going to be different depending on where they are projected. And this is a lesson that we have learned from the dopaminergic neurons. Huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, they can be uh, more or less within the same uh, subdivision of the VTA, but they're going to, be, they're going to have different properties, uh, opioid receptors, so uh, IH, IH currents depending on where do they project. For instance, in the medial part of the VTA, we know that most of those neurons, they don't have D2 receptor, they don't have uh, the dopamine transporter, some of them, they don't even have VMAT2. Then are they
2: dopamine?
1: <laughs> exactly. So they are not dopamine. They are TH, huh? the but TH, they are no yeah. dopamine. Okay. And those are the ones that project to the lateral uh, uh, But, But then... The question is: Okay, under normal conditions, they don't have Vmat2, they cannot release dopamine. But what happens when the BTA is challenged? But whatever, yeah, an infection or whatever thing, maybe those neurons start to make dopamine. Maybe the Vmat2 is. Production is turned on, and now they start making dopamine and accumulate it into the vesicles and release it in the lateral habenula. And what does it mean? You know, so 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 this is again stage dependent.
5: Along those lines, um, I mean, the curiosity is you said that the the glutamate neurons are not that prevalent in the substantia nigra pars compacta. And thinking about Parkinson's disease, is there some sort of protective benefit of being able to produce glutamate? Is that sort of a, that could confer some resilience to the dopamine cells? I know uh, Jim Sermeyer, been here before, has talked about other factors that might be sort of unique, and I was just wondering if it's maybe a constellation of properties of the dopamine
1: Yes, uh, maybe one, um, another, I, I think maybe glutamate can be protective, by, uh, again, because glutamate is also um, a signal for development. Uh but may, uh, some of these neurons, at least the dopaminergic neurons that they are no glutamatergic in the VTA, that they have binding protein that you were mentioning before. Uh, and, and that, it seems to confer some protection to the dopaminergic neurons. But again, there there may be other factors. But I don't know if, if glutamate is one of the things <laughs> to be able to release glutamate. You
2: have to, like, get a glutamate knockout mouse. but. They probably don't survive for a long. <laughs> in that sense, it's very protective. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh, so just uh, for self-serving question, you are interested in looking at astrocytes in okay. uh, uh, EM in the in the VTA or anywhere?
1: Uh, this is something that we started as a collaboration with Anto, but we didn't uh-huh. continue. <laughs> no, I mean, um, I'm. It's not something that. I can, I'm, I'm anticipate to do that, my research, but if you want that we collaborate in looking at them, that right. will be fine. <laughs> Have
2: it on record. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I'm curious about the future of EM. Is it true, first of all, that EM hasn't changed much over the years? And is there a move being made to incorporate it more and adapt it more in the way that you're kind of doing with all these these markers? Well,
1: my hope is that it, it uh, more people use uh, electron microscopy. It's pretty good, and, answer, and, really. Yeah, and, and combine it with these viral vectors because yeah. uh, now we can label an, a neuron uh, and we can follow this neuron in a 3D reconstruction. And there have been great advances in scan electron microscopy that allows you now. To um, look at uh, a tissue uh, without the need for you to do the sectioning. So you can do 3D reconstruction. And so this is a great uh, advancement in uh, ultrastructural analysis. And we're going to use um, this approach to find out if an axon terminal uh, is of these dual axon terminals is making synapses with uh, different neurons or the same neuron because uh, this is very important to, to do this and uh, to find out how these uh, axon terminals communicate. But another thing that uh, has been a great advancement is where you can have a section that you immunostain for fluorescent microscopy and look at the same material in electron microscopy and be able, uh, through um, a computational program, to identify the same neuron with fluorescent at an level of electron microscopy. Oh. So
0: are there initiatives to the database this, like the, the way Alan and... and uh, no, no uh, and actually, uh, we were talking
1: about this morning that we don't have enough people trained in, in this uh, technology. So I think um, effort has to be made into training people, informing people about these advances, and try to encourage them to, to incorporate um, the utilization of this technology in, in their work. So that is my hope that presenting um, electron. Micrographs in my talks, people said, Oh, this we can get these cool data. That's right? what a synapse is. <laughs> yeah, there's a synapse there.
2: <laughs> I have a, you know, a lot of times I argue with my postdocs and they say, Oh, this is synapse here, synapse here. I said, No, a synapse is an electron microscope
1: mm-hmm.
2: definition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like this the synapse has a specific definition, it's an anatomical yes. unit, um, and people use it more as a verb. Exactly.
1: Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, like for, for instance, I, I cannot see how, and, uh, what method would allow us to demonstrate that these axon terminals, dual axon terminals, make two types of synapses. Right. There's no way to demonstrate that. With electrophysiology, it's not possible. Uh, you, you need to see there that um, the synapse.
3: Yeah. I think for your astrocyte,
1: so, the uh,
3: electron microscopy hasn't had a lot of changes because it was already really good. That's the light, not light not microscopes have <laughs> had to improve the resolution Why of do I the think that's <laughs> because it was so terrible. Now the light microscopes have better resolution, not EM resolution, but better than they used to have. And so they've needed advances. The electron microscope didn't have very many drawbacks, but one of the drawbacks was the uh, lack of three-dimensionality. So the sections had to be so thin. And that's really bad for astrocytes because astrocytes have this incredibly complicated morphology, and you cut a section through them, And you just see these little fragments of astrocytes that that all came from one cell, but you can't see that they came from one cell. You can't see how they're connected to each other. So some of these uh, serial reconstruction methods could make a huge difference for studying I think that's one reason why people haven't studied much uh, morphology of astrocytes. It's too fine and complicated to see in the light microscope, and it's too three-dimensional to see in the electron microscope.
2: Yeah, so the, the, yeah, the issue with a lot of the astrocyte physiology is with people trying to measure calcium transients and everything is that the compartments where it really matters, where the astrocytes have these processes that actually wedge themselves inside a synapse, it's just below the resolution of any kind of calcium um, imaging. And yeah. they really don't know what's going on there. You just and see a little
3: puff of light. You, you can't, see can't really localize it. You have no it.
2: idea where it's where it's coming from. Yeah. And and um, I think I, I think you're right. right. The electron microscopy is the only way to get into that kind of resolution, to see what is actually happening, you know, where the rubber meets the road, right? Where the, at the mm-hmm. synapse, that's where exactly. the astrocytes are doing their business, right? Um, I don't... I'm just trying to get it's, people... Who are electron microscopists to jump on the bag. To we do we're the, yeah, <laughs>
1: so we, we were uh, trying to do that with glia. And, yeah. and one of the reasons also why we got these uh, uh, microscopes um, for 3D reconstruction is because we wanted to see if glia really was making synapses. Yeah. Uh, because that's the idea that several people have, but they haven't been able to demonstrate it. So we thought we do serial reconstruction, we'd be able to to see that. So now we have the equipment. Now we need to to, to start using it. Great.
3: It's <laughs> funny that it is. It is actually
1: know-how, knowledge
3: that is human resources that are that limiting factor. Exactly. Right.
1: So being in the intramural program uh, gave, uh, provide as with some uh, breathing, yeah? so we can do that kind of studies. I think th- the studies I have been doing with electromicroscopy, I think i am been able to do it because I'm in the intramural program.
0: What a great discussion. Thank you, Marcella Morales. This um, has been a neuroscientist talk shop. Thanks, guys. Thank
1: Thanks. you.